0: I want to remind you, we are in the tail end of our teaching series, the Gospel in Seven Words, and throughout this entire uh, season of Lent and this worship series, we've been exploring what it would mean and look like for us to, to distill down as best as we can in words that people can understand what the good news of Jesus has meant for us, so that whenever. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, whenever we have an opportunity to give someone an answer who asks us for the reason for the hope we have, we have some words ready to say. And at the heart of this is what we heard about earlier, Sarah mentioned, uh, the role of the Christian as a confessor. So the seven words I'd like us to focus on for Palm Sunday today are these seven words. Would you join with me and read them out loud? True disciples can't stop confessing Jesus name. Now here's a verse that kind of supports what we're trying to talk about from Romans chapter 10. Here Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All throughout chapter 10 in Romans, Paul's describing the power of God's word that creates faith within us. And that faith then seizing and in holding on to God's word is lived out through the actions we take, the words we say, including confessing, giving voice, speaking out loud when the opportunity comes, the name of Jesus and all that that means, he who saves. God saves us from our sins. Now, this use of the word confess is a bit of a unique one. If you were to Google confess, here's what you'd find. From the Oxford Languages Dictionary, there are two primary definitions of that word. To admit or state that one has committed a crime or is at fault in some way. That's the most common usage. The second, to admit or acknowledge something reluctantly. I'm going to confess, you know, I did this or whatever. Typically, because you feel slightly ashamed or embarrassed. What we're talking about is the third use, the least common but appropriate for us today, and that would be to declare one's religious faith. Now, why would we be talking about this on Palm Sunday? Right? You probably love Palm Sunday. After all, you got up this morning, you got dressed, and uh, you made it to church. Good job, by the way, especially of those of you who had to wrestle with kids or spouses or or friends to get here. Uh, You're winning. That's a good thing, right? Uh, And we're here to celebrate the beginning of Holy Week. We have palm branches, right? Uh, We have uh, these great traditions that enhance our worship. All going back to the first Palm Sunday. And maybe you remember the story well. Jesus riding on a donkey like the kings of Israel entering into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah 9. Uh, The one who had come uh, to bring life and healing and hope to the nations. And as he did, the crowds swelling around him worshiping him with palm branches, with their cloaks laid out on the floor, just like they would whenever a king would enter into the city. Now, these palm branches, maybe when you think of palm branches, you think of warm, sandy, sunny beach somewhere. Maybe that's what comes to mind. Maybe some of you did some spring break travel or wish you did, (laughs) right? Um, Palm branches here aren't just about vacation, as awesome as that is, but they were a common symbol of peace and even power in the ancient world. So for example, this is a picture of a Roman coin from the very same time that the first Palm Sunday was happening. You have an emperor, one of the Roman emperors on the front, who is declared to be the son of God, interesting, and on the back, it's kind of hard to see because it's rubbed with use, is the goddess Pax, P-A-X, which means peace, and in her hand is a little palm. So it was no accident that the people that day were waving these palms, hoping that the prince of peace, the long-awaited Messiah, would finally come and restore the nation of Israel. Maybe you remember all of those details. Uh, Maybe some of them are new for you today. What we'd like to do is actually focus on a unique detail to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John also record this account, but they don't include the last part that we're going to look at today. So here's how it goes. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in the highest, in heaven and glory in the highest. That part we've already covered, we're familiar with that, but notice what happens next. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples Maybe that seems a little strange. Why would they tell the disciples and those in the crowd to stop waving their palm branches and declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest? Well, here's the reason why. The Pharisees, as part of the religious establishment, knew full well what the crowds were saying and chanting and hoping for. They knew that in this act of worship, they were declaring that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And they considered that to be blasphemy. For much in the same way that the Roman emperor claimed to be the Son of God, Jesus had also said the same. And for them, that was the greatest offense. And it would be if it were not true. And so Jesus responds, I tell you, if these were silent, talking about the multitude of disciples in the crowd. The very stones would cry out. Now maybe you were here last weekend. Some of you were. Uh, If you weren't, Pastor Randy had an amazing message uh, as part of this series focused on uh, the story of Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 16 where he goes to a place called Caesarea Philippi and there's a massive rock outcropping there that was a place of worship for many of the pagan nations. If you haven't heard the message, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, track it down, and listen to it. It is absolutely worth your time. The rock formation there is the word used to describe it is the Greek word Petra. Petra, you may be familiar with, was a 1990s Christian heavy metal band. Okay, nobody knows. That's okay. Just forget it. It's in the past, right? It was okay, right? No, actually, Petra is similar to the word Petros, which Jesus uses as Peter's name, right? And there's a connection there because Jesus says in Matthew 16, you are Peter and upon this rock, this Petra, I will build my church. His reference there is to the very rock upon which they were standing. The gates of Hades was there at that same location. So if that triggers a memory for you, again, go listen to his message. My point is this, the word Petra refers to a solid rock formation, A massive stone outcropping. It's the kind of stone or rock that you would build your house on, Matthew chapter 7. The wise man builds his house on the rock. It's the kind of rock you would dig a cave into for a tomb. It's the kind of rock, the Petra, where Jesus was buried. It's the strength of a stone that could only be destroyed or broken with a mighty power like an earthquake, just like the Petra was broken when Jesus was crucified the word he uses here is a different one. In Greek, the word lithos is a word that's used to describe a stone or a rock like you would pick up off the ground. In fact, it's interesting. If you've never been to Israel, I hope that someday you get a chance to go and visit. It's absolutely worth your time. In Israel, if you were to go and visit, you'd see there's rock everywhere. In fact, there's an ancient tradition in Judaism. That when God was creating the world, he sent two angels out and they had rock duty. Their job was to schedule or to spread stones all across the earth. But somehow or another, they accidentally flew into each other over Israel and dumped all the rocks there. Right? <laughs> Interesting tradition, right? Uh, the point being, there are lethos everywhere rocks that you can pick up, for example, and stone someone with. Maybe you're familiar with that part of the Bible. Those very same stones scattered across the ground are the ones that the devil says to Jesus, why don't you turn those into bread? So the the word stone here uh, could refer to just the random rocks that are everywhere. But there was another use for the word lithos in Greek as well. It was the kind of stone that you might pick up and build a wall, or you might take and polish and put onto a ring, very precious stones. Revelation uses that word to describe gems and jewels, the beautiful things we treasure. And then another use of the word lethos would be stones that are carved by masons to build beautiful buildings. This word has deep and ancient usage, and it seems that Jesus has something like that in mind that may be connected back to an Old Testament prophecy recorded In Habakkuk chapter two. How many of you have read Habakkuk recently? Right? a few of you, right? Gold stars. Okay? Or extra donuts. Here's the thing. Habakkuk was a prophet in the time of Daniel, right? Not one that we're terribly familiar with, but his three little chapters are absolutely worth your time. I encourage you to go check it out. He's writing especially to the nation of Babylon. Maybe you know that name. Babylon was one of the great cities in the ancient world. In fact, its hanging terraced gardens were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the people of Israel and Judah in particular had been in captivity, in exile there for some time when Habakkuk speaks this word of the Lord to them. He says this, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house By cutting off many peoples, you had forfeited your life. And then he says this in verse 11. For the stone, the lethos, will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. God's word, his prophecy to Babylon at this point, was that the very structures they prided themselves in, and in which they sought to find security and prosperity, would one day speak judgment against them. And if you you know your history, you know Babylon doesn't stand anymore. It's lost to the sands of time and history. It was destroyed as the next nations rose and took their place. And so the stones that the mason had constructed in order to build this monumental sealed city, God said, would speak in testimony against them. Now that's interesting to me because of what happens immediately after Palm Sunday in Luke's gospel. So let's jump back to Luke chapter 19. Immediately after, he says, the stones would cry out, he drew near and he saw the city. And he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. The city of Jerusalem, not quite on the status of Babylon, was a majestic city that was dearly loved by all the people of Israel, but it too was destroyed by the Roman army in the year 70 A.D. So destroyed, in fact, that it said that not one stone was left upon another. Just like Jesus went on to say in verse 44 when this destruction comes, they will not leave one lethos, one monumental carved masonry stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, how do we put all this together? Jesus, as he's entering into Jerusalem, says, if the humans in the crowd that day were not there to give voice to their faith and their hope in him, creation itself would do the work that God had called for it to do. Now, maybe like me, you wake up early in these kind of mornings and you love to hear the birds singing, Right? We've got some house sparrows that are taking advantage of our house project to build nests in all sorts of places we don't even know, but we hear them in the morning and it terrorizes our cat, (laughs) or at least tempts her, right? She wants to figure out where they are. Uh, I promise Sarah, we'll get them out before we close it all in, but um, maybe it's sparrows or maybe you've seen a few robins already, I've seen a few, Or, or some cardinals or some other birds at your bird feeder. Maybe you love the sound of a songbird in the morning, and maybe the squirrels or the rabbits, or the other creatures that are emerging from their winter rest also bring joy to you. And maybe you think, man, these two are part of God's creation and give glory and honor to him. Or maybe you remember the psalm that says the trees of the field will clap their, how- their hands. Uh, all of the life that God has created on the earth gives testament to his presence and his providence, and it also gives him worship and praise. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't choose one of the animate objects that would have been in the environment that day, one of the birds or critters moving across the ground. He chose something that otherwise might seem dead and lifeless. What's the point? All of creation, even the things we might otherwise overlook, is designed by God for the purpose of pointing back to him to giving him honor and glory, to confessing who he is and what he has done. And the same, my friends, is true for you. But here's the challenge. It's not easy. There are very real barriers to confessing the faith that you have in Jesus. So, for example, here's one. I'm too embarrassed. Right? Maybe you go to work or school or talk to your neighbors and you think to themselves, man, I don't want to um, make a fool of myself by trying to talk about Jesus. Or maybe it's more simple than that. You're just like, I don't even know what to say. don't have the words. That's why we've had this whole series, The Gospel in Seven Words, to give you a chance to begin to think about that. Or maybe you're afraid you'll get it wrong and it'll have profound, even eternal spiritual consequences. Before I talk about the next two, I want to say one thing about this. The devil uses all of these as hiccups or hangups, barriers to you doing what you were made to do. And there are lies that are buried within each of them. For this one, I don't want to get it wrong. The answer to that lie is God's clear word, which says that when it comes to the eternal destiny of another human being, it's not your responsibility to get them into heaven. That's God's job, and he's pretty good at it. He uses you, and he delights to, but it's all on his shoulders, the work of life transformation and salvation. You have a part, but it's his job to accomplish. I'll come back to that in a moment. A few more. I don't want to lose a friend. Maybe you're afraid that if you bring up religion at the coffee table or the dinner table, it'll go sideways. Or maybe you even tried once and it didn't go so well. These five are just five real barriers that we experience when we think about our confessing our faith. And I want to share with you the answer to them in our seven words. True disciples can't stop confessing Jesus' name. Why is that? Well, it's because of promises like this. Philippians chapter 2, describing what will happen when Jesus returns in power and glory on the last day. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, the very thing we are called to confess, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Whether believers or not, what Paul says is on the last day, no one will be able to deny that Jesus is who he says he is and has come to do what he has said he will do. Right? There is this inner drive and compulsion that everyone will be compelled to acknowledge on that last day. But even before, that same power is at work within you. So one last passage for today. 1 John chapter 4 says this, And we have seen and testified that the Father, his his Son, to be the Savior of the world. And so whoever confesses that Jesus is who he says he is, has done what he claims to have done and will do what he has promised, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God abides in him and he in God. What is the power to overcome these barriers? It is the very real presence and the promise that God, my friends, is in you by faith. And the same Jesus who defeated death, broke open from the Petra stone grave where he was laid, also is at work in and through you. And he compels you. In fact, he directs you so that you never stop confessing his name. Will you read this with me one last time? True disciples Can't stop confessing Jesus' name. Amen.